So we're continuing our, our way through the, the book of Luke. And if you have a, a Bible with you, you can open it to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are a few Bibles near you on the seats. Um, and if you're, if you're using that Bible, um, it's on, let's see, I always, should always look this up. It's on uh, page 865 in your, your, your pew Bible. And if you've been with us the last few weeks as we've been working our way through um, chapter 8, there's this central theme that is, is being hammered over and over again. And, and it's the idea of the, the power and the authority of Jesus. And so we, we saw it last week, the power and the authority of Jesus over nature itself where he's in the, the boat with his disciples. This storm blows in on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they think they're going to die. They, they call out to Jesus, and he, with a word, is able to calm the storm. So complete power over nature. And then what we're going to see today is a, a complete full power of Jesus over uh, demonic power, spiritual evil. And then... Next week, we're going to look at the authority and power of Jesus over uh, the power of sickness and of, and of death. And, and there again, Jesus has all authority and power. And I think that if you're, if you're going to take away one application from all of these messages together in this section, that, I mean, what does the power and authority of Jesus over all things teach us? Well, I think that it, it teaches us that we don't need to be afraid of anything that comes into our path in the world. That we're to, to fear the Lord with a holy reverence and awe, uh, but, but whether it's storms or demons and spiritual darkness, or whether it's sickness and death, that, that none of those things get the final word because Jesus has authority over them. So again, um, if you have your, your Bible with that in mind, uh, Luke chapter 8, and uh, I'll begin reading in verse 26. And they sailed to the country of the Genesaris, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out of on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, for a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times... It had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them, or they, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out uh, to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Genesaris asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for your complete authority and, and power over demons, over darkness, over the things that we face in life. Lord, we pray that that we would experience peace and and confidence and that you would guide us as we study this this text, looking at hard topics and and really sobering topics, Lord, um, that that we wouldn't say just what what we want to, Lord, but we would see what you have here. You would apply it through your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this passage today, it really begins with something more like a scene from a horror movie uh, where they, they get off the boat, Jesus and his disciples, and they're confronted by this man. Uh, and we learn a lot about him that he is uh, demon-possessed, but he's not just possessed by one demon, but a multitude of demons. He calls it legion, and a Roman legion was about 6,000 men. Um, and, and so this is a, a horde of demons possessing this man. And as a result, he was completely and utterly subject to them. He was completely dominated by demonic control. And so he, he was naked, it says. And we learn from Matthew, and I hinted at it here in Luke as well, that he was violent. Uh, we read that people were afraid to pass that way. And here we read that people would try to, to bind him with chains and with ropes, uh, but that somehow he was able to, to break the chains, break the ropes. And then it says that he would then be driven by the demons out into the desert, into the wilderness, uh, where he would be oppressed. And so you think about this. This is probably one of the worst situations that a person could find themselves. And it's interesting that in, in the, the Gospels, People who are, are victims of demonic possession are usually represented as, as just that, victims. Um, and that he, he is somebody who, um, he's enslaved, he's oppressed, he's naked, he's scorched by the sun in the desert, says he's living among the dead at the tombs, and it seems like he has no hope. And so, again, this man from a scary movie uh, approaches Jesus and his disciples. And, it, and it's just as they've come through this terrifying storm. And, they, and then here comes this, uh, this man. And, and look at how he responds to Jesus in verse 28. 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of him. And so you know, at this point, basically no one fully recognizes the identity of Jesus. The religious leaders don't recognize it. The disciples are just barely starting to see hints of the identity. But just to, to show us that what's going on here isn't just ordinary illness, that, this, that there's something far darker happening, uh, these demons are able to recognize the identity of, of Jesus. Uh, they know what's going on. They know who he is. And, and they say that, you know, you're the son of the, the most high. And, and they see his authority, and, and he says that, you know, have you come to torment me? You know, saying, you know, why are you here, Jesus? Now, I mean, this is tough, <laughs> uh, as many passages in Scripture, to, to see this kind of uh, spiritual darkness, just the idea of, of demon possession, of, of spiritual darkness. It's not necessarily something we want to think about. Or maybe we think about it too much and, and we're, we're terrified uh, by the reality. And it's another reason that I'm thankful to preach through uh, books of the Bible section by section. Because I don't know if I would one week just say, you know, I think I'm going to preach on demons this week. But yet it, it comes up and we have to look at what does the scripture teach. And I think one of the big questions that, that you may be asking, um, and, I, and I think that our, our culture would ask from a text like this, is do demons actually exist? Are there actually evil spiritual beings? Or is this some kind of pre-modern way to try to explain reality? How do we understand this? And I think that if you look at the, the culture around us, there is this morbid fascination with the demonic, with, with spiritual reality, uh, you see it in lots of ways, but I mean, one is just movies. I mean, every year it seems like there's some movie about exorcisms or demons or spiritual darkness in some way. And, and there's, a, there's a degree to which it's, people just watch it because it's entertainment. But also I think that it, it strikes a chord that, that people recognize that there is some kind of unexplained darkness in the world, and we know it on a on a deep level. And I think that that's evident just by looking at the, the cultures of the world. I mean, probably Western society is one of the few places where maybe the majority of people don't believe in spiritual forces of darkness. But the majority of people around the world and throughout history have believed in some idea of, of demons or, or spiritual evil. You see it in Eastern cultures and Western cultures and African cultures and Native American cultures, almost any culture you come across. And that doesn't mean, that's not decisive proof of the reality, but yet I think that it does speak to something, that there, there's some sort of common thing that people who aren't, ha, don't rub shoulders, where there's no influence, where they're at, you know, on an island by themselves, recognize on some level that there is such a thing as, as spiritual evil. And it's, it's really what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 in the Bible, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you, you say, well, what did the Apostle Paul believe about spiritual reality? Where he, he says it, that there are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And I think that this is something that is, is not hard to believe in some ways when we just turn on the news and look at the world. You know, I was mentioning it in the, the pastoral prayer, but looking at the, the shootings this past week in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas, and I'm not saying that, that every single person who, who takes a weapon and decides to slaughter innocent people is directly possessed in the way that the man is here in this, this text. But when we look at that kind of evil, that kind of atrocity, I think it's, it's not hard to have some sort of a sense that, that maybe there's actually some dynamic of evil that's deeper at work in the world. Or another example of this is, um, as a pastor, I'm a um, mandated reporter that, you know, if I were to suspect child abuse, I'm, I'm mandated to report it. And the state of Pennsylvania requires mandated reporters to go through a training. It's just like a three-hour online course. And I did it recently um, on the, the website for P Pennsylvania. And, and I was just so grieved by the, by the reality of abuse and how common it is, uh, that a, a parent, parent, apparently from, from studies, one in four girls and one in six boys will be abused before the age of 18. That's about 25% of the population. And, and, you know, and that's the, the deepest, darkest depths of, of spiritual brokenness. And yet it, we see it in the world and we see it at, at work around us. And that's, again, where it, it doesn't prove decisively the reality of, of demons or spiritual darkness, but I think that it makes it a lot easier to believe in that reality. And that's why then when we come to Scripture, which is ultimately the reason to, to believe in spiritual darkness, um, I think that what we, we, what we see in the world around us seems to line up then with the testimony of, of Scripture. And, and if you were to just summarize, okay, what does the Bible teach in very brief about the reality of, of demons, spiritual darkness? Uh, first, that, that God created everything that exists, and he made it good, and that includes angels who are powerful, glorious, spiritual beings. And then second, that some angels turned away from God, fell from glory, and in scripture they're called unclean spirits, they're called demons, fallen angels, uh, but then third, we, we read in the book of James that, that the demons know that God exists and they tremble. But yet, even though they, they believe spiritual reality, just as we see in our text, that they know who Jesus is, they, have, they, they see it, but yet they're opposed to everything that is, that is good in the world. And I, I always think of that, the image of the, the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight, if you've seen that, the, the Batman movie, where... The, the Joker, it says that, that you know, he, he wasn't out for some grand purpose like money or fame, but, but really what he wanted was just to see the world burn. And that's the biblical witness of, of spiritual darkness. But I think, though, as, as Christians have, have looked at what the Bible teaches about spiritual darkness, Christians have made two mistakes. Because you can, I mean, you can drive off the road in, in, in two directions. And, and so the 
The one direction that, that Christians have gone off the rail is to completely ignore and not think about the reality of spiritual darkness at all. Distribute everything to, to natural causes. Maybe in some part of their brain acknowledging it, of their desiring to take the Bible seriously. Uh, but I think that, that if, we're, if we don't face the reality that there is spiritual evil, then it's a lot harder to, to spot it and to, to be on guard against it. And, and as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. That's how Jesus told us to, to pray. But then the other danger is to become overly obsessed with the reality of, of the demonic and demons. And, and I think that that's an equally dangerous thing to do, where, where everything becomes some sort of demon. Where I mean, if you have a cough or you have, there's a storm or there's any sort of sickness uh, that, that has, has no category for uh, mental health struggle or anything, I think that that is extremely dangerous as well. And actually, the Bible, it, it recognizes the reality of spiritual darkness, but it also doesn't talk about it all that much. It's not the main theme of the Bible. Uh, there are no clear examples of demon possession in the entire Old Testament, um, a handful in the New Testament, but most of them center around the ministry of Jesus um, and around the, the early expansion of the church in the, in the book of Acts. And so it seems like there was a, a special intensification of demonic activity opposing the work of, of Jesus and the accomplishment of, of redemption. But yet I think then, as we think about, about our lives, is this something that, that we could see in the world today? Or is it something that was only at the time of Jesus? Is there such a thing as, as demon possession today? And, and it may be something that, you know, if you, if you go to a church that is known for being charismatic, you would expect. But, you know, probably Presbyterians don't necessarily have the reputation for talking about demonic activity a lot. Um, but I think that, that if we're to take the Bible seriously, that I think there's no reason biblically to, to think that it could not happen today. Um, I've never seen it, um, but I, I think that it's unusual. But yet there, there are cases, I think, where somebody could become actually dominated by spiritual power of evil. But yet it's unusual because it's unusual in the Bible. And so if you're taking the Bible seriously, it's, it's unusual here. And so, of course, it's going to be unusual in our experience as well. But I think it's also important to say that, 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 that it's not something that Christians need to fear. That for somebody who is in Christ, the, the Bible is clear that if you are in Christ, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you uh, and that there, there, is, there is safety. So I mean, there's still temptation, accusation that can come from spiritual forces of darkness. But what this man is facing in our text today, this kind of complete control and denominate, uh, domination of, of evil is not something that, that a believer has to, to fear. And that, I think that that's a huge comfort to know from Scripture. And so with that in mind, so that's kind of our excursus into the Bible teaching on, on this reality of darkness. And so let's look at how then it, it begins to play itself out in this text again from Luke. So we said Jesus steps out of the boat. He's confronted by the, the demon-possessed man. The demons recognize Christ's identity. And then we see probably one of the most vivid, intense descriptions of demonic activity in the Bible. Uh, but then 
Jesus, in, in responding to this, does something really surprising. He asks the demon a question. And he says, he says what is your name? And some people think that, that what, it's some sort of ancient magic where if you can name something, you can control it. But I don't think that that's at all what is happening. That w by asking his name, I think that Jesus is, is asserting his, his complete sovereignty and complete control. And, and you can think about it like this. That if you're on vacation and a stranger walks up to you and says, uh, can I see your passport and what's your name? You're probably not going to hand them your passport or tell him your name. Um, or at least you'd want to know a little bit first, because you think this person doesn't have the authority to ask my name or to ask for my passport. But if you're in the line and customs coming back through the international airport and the custom agent says, let me see your passport, what's your name? You would just hand it right over because you know that he has the authority to ask for it. And that's the way that it is for, for Jesus here. He can say, what is your name? And as much as demonic forces oppose and hate Christ, they're, they're bound to answer. They have to respond. And, and so the, look at how the demon responds in verse 30. He calls himself Legion, which is, is not exactly, it's kind of an evasive answer because it's not exactly a name. But as we said, it was a, a word for a, a Roman military group of about 6,000 people. And so what it's showing is really two things. It's showing one, what an incredible force of demonic oppression Jesus is facing in this moment. That if, if you were to pull back the, the spiritual veil and see what is actually going on in this, this moment, if the disciples had spiritual lenses, you know, it would be you know, Jesus against a horde of demons. And you think, all right, how is that competition going to go? How does a legion of demons face up to the power and the authority of Jesus. But then also, I think we see the fact that this guy is in a bad situation, right? That how is, it, how is this poor man going to uh, free himself from this oppression? And so look at what these demons do. They, it says that, that they plead with Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Um, that they're saying, you know, don't bring the reality of, of the final judgment right here, right now, in this moment, to continue to delay the reality of, of final judgment. And instead, they say, they see this herd of pigs, send us into this herd of pigs. And, I, and then this is completely shocking then, that Jesus actually grants the request of the demons in this text. And, and the demons go out of this man into this herd of pigs. And immediately the herd of pigs rushes down and is drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And it, I mean, if, this, if you were going to do a series, you probably could on you know, the top 10 most strange and confusing passages in the Bible. This would probably be on your list. And I actually heard about a, a leading atheist who was explaining why he didn't believe in the Bible, and he pointed actually to this very passage. And he said, well, I couldn't, I couldn't believe in, in Jesus or the Bible, because look at him. He, he just sends demons out into pigs, you know, and this poor innocent animals and its cruelty to animals, and, you know, and then, I mean, wasting a lot of good bacon. <laughs> uh, and... 
And, and then you know, they, they rush down into the, to the water. And, and why, if he really has authority and power over darkness, why not just put an end to them right then? Why even let them continue any sort of work in the world? And so how do we, how do we think about, about this? And you know, as I, re- I reflected on it, I think that there's three reasons, at least, that, that Jesus did it this way rather than the way that this um, atheist commentator would have expected. Because I think that what Jesus does here, first of all, it, it shows that demons can't even control a pig without the permission of Christ. Um, that, that Christ has complete sovereignty or, or and control. And, and it, it's interesting, it even says in the text that he gave them permission and they went. And that's what we see in scripture. The book of Job, if you read that book in the Old Testament, Job comes, um, Satan comes and accuses Job to God. And God says, you know, you can take this away from him. You can go no further. He, but in the, and all along, Satan can only go as far as God will allow him to go, that, that, he, that he's still subject to the, to the sovereignty and to the control of God. But then second, I think it, it shows the real identity of demons, that Scripture calls them unclean spirits. And remember that, you know, this is not a society that had bacon for breakfast. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a, a Jewish society where a pig would be like the ultimate unclean animal. Uh, it, it, even in the, the passage that we heard read for our Old Testament text, you know, God's talking about the sin of Israel and he says like they eat pig's flesh. Um, and, and say, like, look at where the people have, have fallen. So, so by sending unclean spirits into unclean animals, it becomes essentially this, this vivid image of what is actually there and who they actually are. Uh, but then finally, I think that it points to the future reality of, of God's judgment. Because what we, we read in the book of Revelation in Scripture is that, that God has a point when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and that he will throw Satan and all evil into a lake of fire, and there'll be complete joy and gladness and, and freedom from all that is that is evil. And also part of demonic activity is this like self-destruction, willing the destruction of self, knowing God's reality and then destroying yourself and everything around it. And so by, by sending the demons into the pigs, it, it's like this drama playing out of essentially human history that, that, that these unclean, uh, spirits are under the authority and power of Jesus that he can command them and that their end is destruction and that they will plunge themselves into a, a lake of, of destruction to, to be ended forever in their activity. And so, you know, I think that you can see why Jesus grants the permission. It's not, it's not just him being flippant, not him uh, being cruel, uh, but he's, he's painting a picture for us of reality. And so I think that this has a lot of then implications for us in our, in our world today. And I think that it, it means that we don't have to be afraid of spiritual darkness as Christians. That we don't have to, to be afraid. Yes, we wage war against, uh, you know, not flesh and blood, but against principalities and heavenly places. But God is, he's sovereign. He can control it. He can command it. It can go no further than, than he permits and ultimately, he's going to gain victory in the destruction of all that is evil and all that is unclean. And I actually had a, had a neighbor in 
Philadelphia when Grace and I, I lived there, who had um, a background where he had seen a lot of really profound evil in his own life. And he uh, very interestingly believed in Satan, he believed in demons, he believed in spiritual evil, but he also did not believe in Jesus. And, and so, like, the world is a very scary place, um, potentially even rightly. And, but I was, I was telling him how, you know, I don't think that, that we have to be afraid, that, that Jesus has complete sovereignty and control, and that, that we're in Jesus, that, that, he, that he protects us and, and, and guards us and, and delivers us. And so if he were to, to be in Jesus, that, that he would be essentially free from the, the fear that he had of, of spiritual reality. And he was just blown away that that would even be possible. And I think that, that we should rejoice in that, rejoice in the fact that, that we don't have to, to live in, in superstition. We don't have to, to live in, in, in fear, but yet we have hope and life that is in Christ, and actually hope in life that, that even gives us comfort when we're facing temptation. Because it, as I said, we do face temptation in life, but we always know that, that in Christ, when we're being tempted to sin, that we have a, a Savior who loves us and gave himself for us. When we're being tempted to false belief, we have a Savior who, who is guiding us and revealing himself to us through his Spirit. When we're um, tempted to despair, we can know that that there's a love that surpasses all understanding that is ours in Christ, that, that we have this um, enormous well of, of joy and confidence that we can draw from in Christ. So just then as we, as we wrap up, um, I just want to draw your attention to this last section of our, of our text because you know, we saw that the power of demons over this man, the, the authority and power of Jesus over the demons but then in, the, in this last section, we see the, the way in which people respond to the authority and power of Jesus. And we see these two responses. So, so look at the first response in verse 34. It says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Genesaris asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And so, you know, the, the word spreads, the herdsmen <laughs> kind of freaked out, run to the town, tell everybody what had happened, and they probably don't believe or they want to see it for themselves. So it says that they come out, and, and when they show up, it's no longer this terrifying specter of a demon-possessed man, but they see somebody who's clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, uh, listening to the teaching of Christ, complete and other deliverance and transformation. And you would expect that in that moment they would rejoice for this man that he has experienced deliverance and, and, and rejoice that the, there is a Savior who has power over the forces of darkness. But instead it says they were afraid. And it's not the reverent awe that the disciples had in the boat that we talked about last week, 
Uh, but this is a fear, in one sense, of the power of Jesus, but I think it's also a fear of some sort of economic loss. Because, I mean, this wasn't necessarily the best vocation for a Jewish community to have a herd of pigs, but it was worth a lot economically. And so to, to lose that, they think, okay, what else are we going to lose if Jesus continues to work in this community? What else is going to be the impact of this here? And so essentially, we would rather have demon-possessed people wandering around our community and still have our economic prosperity than we would have freedom from that through the power of Jesus and potentially lose something that we hold dear. And so they, they do really the, the most tragic thing that anyone could possibly do. They ask Jesus to leave their community. So Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and go right across the lake where they had just come from. And I think that, that this response to Jesus is something that we see today as well. That on some level, we might recognize that Jesus has the authority and power over darkness. We might see the way that he can change lives or see people who are transformed. But there's this sense of, I'm not sure if I want the, the change that Jesus is going to bring into my life or into the world. I don't know if I want to change the way that I'm doing business. I'm not sure if I want to change the way that I'm spending my time or the way that I'm spending my money. And so, so maybe I'll, I'll choose to, to keep my own freedom and autonomy in the world and, and maybe have a little bit more darkness in my community, but that seems far better than giving up freedom or giving up prosperity or giving up wealth. And as I said, that that is the most tragic mistake that any person could make. But then look at the, the second response to Jesus in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so I don't know if you, you see the irony here. Three requests are, are made of Jesus in this passage. The first request is from the demons. And Jesus grants their request, sends them into the pigs. The second request is from the, the people of the town for Jesus to leave. And he grants their requests and he leaves. But then the third request is this man who had been delivered who says, Jesus, let me go with you. Let me go in the boat with you. I want to follow you like these other people are following you. And Jesus says, no. And it's not that Jesus doesn't have a, a plan for his life, but Jesus actually has a different plan and mission for his life than he has for his disciples. And he says in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And then it says in the last verse that that's exactly what he did. He went out and declared to everyone how much God had done for him. And this is ultimately our response to the power of Jesus. And, and to our experience of that power is to go out and, and declare how much he has done for us. And you might say, well, I, I, I don't have the sort of dramatic tale of deliverance that this man would have. But every single believer in Christ has, has a story of, of deliverance. Because apart from his grace, we are all uh, enslaved to, um, to darkness. The Apostle Paul says in 
Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked, walking according to the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirits of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humanity. And that's who we are apart from his grace, but yet he, he brings us life and hope through his spirit. And ultimately, as we're, we go out proclaiming how much he is, has done for us, it is this meal that gives us the, the picture of how much Jesus had done, has done for us, of the, the deliverance that is ours in Christ. Because Jesus entered into a, a world that, that can be such a, a broken, dark world. Jesus faced demonic power, not only in his temptation in the desert, but as he cast out demons throughout his ministry. And he did it for us. That He, he faced these things because he, he loves us and he was going to open a way of, of salvation. And in the book of Hebrews, it, it says that, that we don't have to fear Satan or death because it's been disarmed. And, and Jesus has, has done that by dying and, and rising again from the dead. That, that he's, he's destroyed the, the power of death itself for us. Because his, his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. He took our sin upon us. So whenever the false accusation comes from um, demonic forces saying, this is what you did, you should be driven to shame and fear. Um, even if the accusations are true, that we're clothed by Christ, we're, we're sitting before him with, with dignity, and the, the, the pleasure of being able to declare how much he has done for us.